0: As a kid growing up in New York, most parents used to have a wives' tale. If you're in the bathroom too long, sitting on that toilet, eventually an
1: alligator's gonna come up, snap, and bite you in the butt. Who'da thunk that that's an actual real thing? Alligators in the sewers. Maybe not biting ass, but
0: still in the sewers of New York. Wild, crazy, and true.
1: Have you heard the story? Of and written on the wall. And everyone blood. has
0: the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. are telling you stories of the old. Family.
1: There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kids. To
0: find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American.
1: A lore. story behind the story. Because it's just a story.
0: Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Sam.
0: And we're here to tell you a story.
1: Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths, and misdeeds say about us as humans.
0: Want to welcome all of you back?
1: Oh, it's you again. You are my favorite people. And I don't know if you know this, but meeting you here each week is kind of the best part of my week. And I look forward to it. Because you know what? You're not sassy. You don't talk back like my kids. And you appreciate the things. And the wisdom that I have for you. Even if it's kind of wonky, quirky, and twisted. (laughs)
0: Wonderful. We do want to thank everybody that's gone on to iTunes, left ratings, and reviews. We do want to encourage you all to go on to our social media outlets at Just A Story Pod. And check out some different things about the shows and episodes that we've done. And it's also a great way to reach out to us. You can also find out more about the show on our website, justastorypod.com.
1: And from there, you can contact us, you can leave comments, you can... Nice ones. Nice ones. I see you. Anyway, you can contact us, leave comments, or view artwork and sources for our episodes. You can also find other links that will lead you to our merch store, where you can purchase things from our collection to wear upon your person. And links to our Patreon, where you can become a sustaining member and help support the show. And you give us a way to get access to all of the weird and wonderful articles that we cobble together into semi-coherent bodies of work for all of you every time we sit behind this fancy microphone.
0: That's what we do. And, you know, we should have our new Schrodinger's Cat shirt up. So check out the merch store and see that awesome design.
1: I kind of think it's awesome. Like, I was really proud of it. I liked that one.
0: And another great way to reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline.
1: The Urban Legend Hotline. If you would like to call the Urban Legend Hotline, you can do so by dialing 512-222-3375. And there you will have an opportunity to record your voice on some digital form of something. And the internet will cloud it to us somehow. I still don't understand how it works, but you know what? It does. And we hear you loud and clear. So give us a call Tell us all about your favorite urban legend, the scary stories that freaked you out when you went to camp, or that mean, mean babysitter you had that wouldn't stop telling you that there was something lurking in your closet that, come to think of it, could have been her boyfriend. Anyway.
0: <laughs> I heard heavy breathing. What was that?
1: Eh, just don't worry about it. Probably a monster. Less scary. Less scary than bad childcare. Anyway, anyway, Jacob... Jacob, stop talking about babysitters making out with boyfriends, and oh, let's get back to the story at hand. The story at hand.
0: This is a classic, a classic, classic, the most classic of urban legends.
1: When I think urban legends, I think Choking Doberman, which we've done. done. We've done it. And I think Vanishing Hitchhiker. Done it. And, oh, The Killer in the Backseat, which we, we'll, we'll get day. there. And Alligators in the Sewers
0: alligators in the sewers a classic classic urban legend
1: if you are a large urban area you need sewers it's what you need and if you are a large urban area you need legends it's what you have and sewers and legends and alligators oh my this had to happen
0: it did and the story of alligators lurking in the new york city sewer system has been around for a long time.
1: And it's specifically New York City?
0: Specifically. Huh. And there's even a statue to it, which is fantastic.
1: Is it true?
0: Yeah, it's an alligator coming out of a sewer getting a baby. But a great telling of the story is in Thomas Pynchon's novel, in his novel V, he wrote, Did he remember the baby alligators? Last year, or maybe the year before, kids all over New York City bought these little alligators for pets. Macy's was selling them for 50 cents. Every child, it seemed, had to have one. But soon, the children grew bored with them. Some set them loose in the streets, but most flushed them down the toilets. And these had grown and reproduced, had fed off rats, so that now they moved big, blind, albino, all over the sewer system. Down there, God knew how many there were. Some had turned cannibal because in their neighborhood the rats had all been eaten or had fled in terror
1: oh well that's just not true there are always going to be rats in new york
0: (laughs) that's true but it is so prevalent the department of environmental protection that you know runs the sewers has an alligator as their mascot Mm. not a real one cute and it was wonderfully done in the film alligator In the 80s?
1: No, nothing was wonderfully done in the 80s in films named Alligator, I can promise you.
0: Oh, and there's a sequel, don't worry.
1: I'm sure there are four. A young marine biologist named Tina Looks Good is working on her PhD. She travels down to the New York City sewers, losing buttons along the way. Join us for this nonstop thrill ride.
0: For the next sci-fi movie, don't worry. Oddly enough, I went to high school with the guy that scores all of those movies. But so these Alligators kind of showing up where they're not supposed to be. We're used to that. Yeah. We're from Louisiana.
1: Louisiana yard dogs.
0: Whenever it flooded uh, last year, I had my Facebook feed full of videos and pictures of alligators in people's neighborhoods. And of course, it happens in Florida as well.
1: No, it doesn't. They're not really gator people.
0: Oh, they have many Florida man stories. I promise you.
1: We should do an episode on Florida man. (laughs)
0: Now there are some stories of alligators showing up where they're not supposed to be in New York in modern times. Not in the sewers, though. They usually just escape from a zoo or something like that. How uh, often
1: has that happened?
0: A few times in the last 20 years.
1: Good. Good.
0: But one interesting element of the story that is sometimes there is the albino element.
1: I've seen a white alligator.
0: It's a l- <laughs>
1: What does that mean? It's not
0: a true albino. It has some pigment.
1: The one we've seen?
0: Yeah, the one in New Orleans.
1: Because it doesn't have white eyes. It has blue eyes. Right. So at the New Orleans Aquarium, there is a white alligator. And you must see the white alligator if you go to the aquarium. Like, they make you. I'm not recommending it. They actually make you. Look at it. it. Look at it. You'll see it there.
0: (laughs) Well, it was picked up by fishermen in the swamps of Louisiana. They found the nest. And got all of the little baby white alligators. The
1: whole bunch of them The whole bunch white. of them, yeah. The whole litter? Is it a litter? I don't know. It is now.
0: Do I look like a herpetologist? It's
1: an owl litter.
0: You're an owl litter.
1: What do you call an alligator wearing a vest? What? An investigator. Oh, <laughs> you're good. I'm not. That's a terrible joke. Yeah. I told this to my yeah? six-year-old yesterday. <laughs>
0: Now, interestingly, there was another urban legend that was circulating in the 60s in New York that had to do with albino white out of place things in the sewers. And that was of the famous New York white marijuana.
1: Why was it white, Jacob?
0: Because it was in the dark, so it lost all of its pigment.
1: Then how did it grow, Jacob?
0: Hey, do I look like a botanist here? (laughs) How about more importantly, why is there a ton of marijuana growing in the sewers? Same reason... Is the alligators. So every time you have a bust, people go and flush their marijuana.
1: Okay, this is even stupider than I originally thought. Um I would down the assume toilet. that someone was just farming illegally. Like they had just gone and gone down to the underground and we're like, no one will find it here.
0: Well, so some folklorists think that some of the earliest reports of alligators in the series come from marijuana farmers who were smuggling their crops mm-hmm. through the tunnels under the city.
1: And they did not want people to know that they were down there, so they're like, stay out of there, there's gators in India Yeah. Sure.
0: So it's possible that these two you kind know, of urban legends melded somehow and you get the New York white marijuana and you get the New York white alligators.
1: <sighs> white marijuana couldn't exist.
0: Well there's no reason for the alligators to turn white. In just a few years, you don't lose pigment through your lifetime.
1: Well, they tan, Jacob. They tan. If they could just get some sun, they would be back to their loggy looking selves before long. No. no. They're just
0: very pale in winter. No, it's someone that's been smoking too much New York white. (laughs) And they're watching the Discovery Channel and they see like, deep in the caves, these fish have lived from millennia, where they have no pigment left in their bodies.
1: Man, I bet the alligators live in the sewers. I bet they don't have any pigment left either, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. <laughs> it's crazy, like some white alligators, y'all. We can imagine just some white alligators that come up and bite you. on a brownie.
0: So there are reports from many cities of this, but it is definitely a New York urban legend. And in the 80s, the New York Times released an article kind of debunking the myth.
1: Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. We were worried about it.
0: But then when they did that, the director of the New York Sea Grant Institute wrote in and said, oh, no, no less a source than all the news that's fit to print reported a veritable rash of Saurian sightings in the city sewers through the 1930s.
1: Gotcha journalism. Kind well, so of yeah, the wrong the way. Opposite, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: So this definitely got people start digging through the New York Times archives. And boy, did they find some things. In September 4th of 1927, a good-sized Florida alligator was found in a storm-swollen stream in Middletown, New York. It was later discovered that the alligator had escaped several months ago from a pen on the premise of Dr. F.E. Fowler.
1: So Dr. Fowler just had a pet.
0: Yeah. Or he was like raising some alligators.
1: To eat. Yeah. Because you can eat alligator.
0: Yeah, it's tasty.
1: It's like on the menu here Like that's not a joke That's not just a, like We're so country We eat alligator
0: Yeah we're in Louisiana now By the way
1: <laughs> Yeah we've relocated Can't you tell Did the cricket sound different
0: So on June 3rd of 1932 there is a report out That police are organizing An alligator hunt In Westchester County After two boys Bring in a three foot Dead alligator And claim they caught it In the Bronx River
1: I have a feeling That they just like Tom Sawyer The New York City Police Department <laughs>
0: Two small boys had appeared at headquarters last night to show the chief a dead alligator, about 36 inches long, which they said they had captured along the shores of the lake. The boys told the chief that the Bronx River, of which the lake is a part, had been swarming with at least two or three other alligators. That's
1: not swarming.
0: To little young boys it is. The start of the explorers was delayed today because of fear on the part of the police chief that a species of human beings known as baseball players, who congregate on the shores of the lake would interfere with the expedition. The proper method of catching an alligator alive was the subject of a conference this afternoon between the police chief and his men. Someone suggested that one of the police explorers who sings bass in the police quartet ought to practice the alligator mating call, which the police chief learned was a cross between the bark of a dog and the grunt of a pig.
1: I'm not doing it. I want to. (laughs) I'm like like a feel in my throat being like we should experiment, but I'm saying no.
0: A hurried visitor to the police headquarters told the police chief that a piece of liver would make an alligator literally walk across the water to shore and then it could be captured alive easily with this type of net generally used by butterfly catchers.
1: These men need to come spend an afternoon in the basin.
0: <laughs> the police chief put in a requisition for enough liver to feed a good-sized alligator.
1: How much is that? I don't know. Like, does that I what think you wrote on the I order slip?
0: No. But she was like, "I don't know. How about one?" <laughs> one liver. And one of his men promised to lend the explorers a fishing net for the expedition.
1: I think they need those things that old timey dog catchers use.
0: It's, I don't know. The article's like so tongue in cheek.
1: Is it serious or is it like. I mean, it's
0: from the New York Times.
1: That doesn't mean it's serious. Like, not in the 1930s. <laughs> what? It's yellow journalism. They're still having fun. Having a good time. We got gators. Now. Man singing bass <laughs> in the quartet. Doing the mating call is like my favorite mental image, maybe ever.
0: Now on July 2nd, just two days later of 1932, the alligator hunt was called off after it was decided the boys had seen snakes or lizards in the river and not gators. The dead gator they'd brought in was identified as a pet crocodile, which had escaped from a neighbor's backyard a few weeks prior to all of the excitement.
1: Well, that may be our, our route there, huh? No. No.
0: This one is.
1: Oh. Are you ready for it? Yes. Cite your sources.
0: New York Times. February 10th, 1935. Alligators found in uptown sewer. Youth shuffling snow into manholes see the animal churning in icy water. Snare it and drag it out. Reptile slain by rescuers when it gets vicious. Whence it came is mystery. The youthful residents near the murky Harlem River were having a rather grand time at dusk yesterday shoveling the last of the recent snow into a gaping manhole. Suddenly, there were signs of clogging ten feet below, where the manhole drop merged with the dark conduit leading to the river. One of the boys yelled, Hey, you guys, wait a minute, and got down on his knees to see what was the trouble. What he saw in the thickening dusk almost caused him to topple into the icy caverns. For the jagged surface of the ice, blockade below was moving, and something black was breaking through. Salvatore's eyes widened when he managed to leap to his feet and call his friends. Honest, it's an alligator, he exclaimed. Honest, mister,
1: it's an alligator. I swear, it's 50 feet long. He sounds like a newsie. I think they were. Extra, extra, read all about it.
0: The animal apparently was thrashing about in the ice, trying to get clear. When the first wave of awe had passed, the boys decided to help it out. I'm sure they did. We
1: can charge people a nickel to whistle it.
0: We want some clotheslines, demanded the delegation, and got it.
1: <laughs> did they say that, or did they just go take clotheslines?
0: So one of the boys, an expert in western movies.
1: <laughs> I've seen them all. i watched them like 50 times.
0: <laughs> fashioned a Slipknot, and with the others watching, breathlessly he dangled the noose into the sewer. And after several tantalizing near catches, looped it about the gator's neck. Then he pulled hard. There was a grating of rough, leathery skin against the jumbled ice. Slowly, with its curving tail twisting weakly, the animals dragged from the snow ten feet through the dank cavern and to the street where it lay, noncommittal. It was not in Florida. That was clear.
1: Excuse me, it seems that I've made a wrong turn and, uh, where am I exactly? Uh, yes, my name's Florida Man
0: <laughs> You boys are really good at making these Nooses. But whenever one of the boys went to loosen the rope, the creature opened its jaws and
1: snapped. Shocking. So, this is the least surprising thing I've heard so far. <laughs>
0: so guess what happened?
1: It clubbed it in the head with a baseball bat.
0: Curiosity and sympathy turned to animity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let him
0: have it. <laughs> the cry went up.
1: Let him have it. Whack him going. Get him. Get
0: him. And remember they had the shovels. They were shoveling snares. So they beat
1: him with the shovels. <laughs> Oh, my God. Hit it again. Make sure it's dead. Make sure it's dead. Oh, my God. I need a man. This is very stand by me, but not. So after they
0: killed the alligator, they went to weigh it and found it weighed 125 pounds and said that it measured seven and a half feet to eight That's feet a long. big
1: alligator. But
0: it would weigh more than 125 pounds if it was that long.
1: <laughs> you know how fish stories are. It was this big, I tell you. It's kind of a fish story. They fished for it. They caught it. They fished for it lassoed it. Well, they're rooting tooting New Yorkers, you know?
0: <laughs> now, everyone was, you know, just kind of trying to figure out where it came from, and they never, ever found out. But the article says, finally, the theory simmered down to that of a passing boat. Plainly, a steamer from the mysterious Everglades or thereabouts had been passing 123rd Street, and the alligator had
1: fallen overboard. Why is that the most likely scenario?
0: Because the New York Times said it. <laughs>
1: I mean like not an overturned circus train. This is not like a hippo situation. This is not.
0: Argan just escaped from someone's yard.
1: I don't know. It is weird. It seems like it wouldn't have made it very long in the cold weather.
0: Well, that's they kind of say that you know, isn't the cold weather that's why they were able to kind of wrestle?
1: No, they're a rootin' tootin' cowboy New Yorkers, dude. They'd seen all the westerns. That too. Honest, Mister Honest.
0: Now, there was one other article from around the same time, June 7th of 1937, where passengers waiting on the eastbound platform of the Brooklyn Museum station for the subway just before midnight were startled by the sudden appearance of a two-foot alligator emerging from a refuse can, but they figured out that passengers on the station told the police that shortly before the alligator appeared, a man put a large bundle in the refuse can.
1: So, a man threw an alligator away? Underground. Why did the man throw the alligator away? (laughs) this is this, is this is the mystery here for me
0: where are they coming from Macy's
1: but why would a man be like you know I don't know what to do with him I'm going to parcel him up I'm gonna wrap him up with paper I'm gonna wrap him up with glue <laughs> then go take him down to the and throw him away like why wouldn't you just like take him to Central Park and let him go or like put him in a sewer grate why would you
0: why wouldn't you just like put him in a box and write mysterious everglades on it and just put some stamps and put it in the mail? <laughs>
1: They mailed children. I'm not thinking that this would be a huge problem.
0: So besides that being the main kind of news story, it shows that there is some sort of real-life events that may be connected to an alligators in the sewers idea. Where this story probably really took hold was when it was published in Robert Daly's 1959 World Beneath the City, which was a book.
1: Sounds exciting. <laughs> in Louisiana, it'd be like, there's sand. No, seriously. By a boat. <laughs> By a boat.
0: So in it, Daly is writing about kind of the history of sewers and things like that. And he talks to Teddy May, New York superintendent of sewers until 1959. He was also known as king of the sewers.
1: That's right.
0: What do you think was on his sandwich at the local deli? Hey, can I get a uh, king of the sewers, please?
1: You want extra horseradish? Covers the smell, they say, when it gets in the mustache hairs. When they go back down there, they say the horseradish helps keep the pool from stinking up the mustaches. Just a theory. It's a theory. So horseradish is my answer. Thank you. Okay.
0: (laughs) So according to the book, sewer inspectors first reporting seeing gators around 1935, but May, a.k.a. king of the sewers, didn't believe them and he decided he was gonna go down there and look for himself he was going gator hunting he said them guys had been drinking i'll go down there and prove to you guys that there ain't no alligators in my sewers
1: he too sounds like a newsie
0: he sat at his desk screwing his fist into his eyes trying to forget the sight of alligators serenely paddling around in his sewers the beam of his own flashlight had spotted alligators whose length on average was about two feet The colony appeared to have settled contently under the very streets of the busiest city in the world. So the alligators, according to Teddy May, were all destroyed. They were either shot or poisoned. And the hunt concluded in 1937.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, if Teddy May says that, it's got to be true.
0: Well, he announced to the public, the gators are gone.
1: Part of me misses the era when it's like, we're going to clean up New York by killing these seven alligators that might be living in the sewer no, it's like we're Hero. gonna clean up New York by like relocating the homeless population and getting the strip joints out of Times Square.
0: But a sewer official told Jan Bronvand,
1: our buddy, hey Jan,
0: that Teddy May was almost as much of a legend as the alligators, a spinner of colorful yarns.
1: Well, what's he gonna talk about if it's if he doesn't, you know, embellish a little?
0: Well, so Daly, the guy that wrote the book, said he's convinced me it was a true story without even trying. He wasn't trying to win me over or convince me. The stuff just kept coming out. He said he still believed that Mr. May was telling the truth, even if the numbers could have been exaggerated. And besides, it made a terrific story. How can you turn that down?
1: So wait, 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 wait. wait. <clears throat> are you telling me, Jacob, that the king of the sewers was full of shit? Maybe so. Just had to put a finer point on that one.
0: <laughs> Thanks again. So now people are still writing in to the government asking from all over the world if alligators are really in the sewers. John T. Flaherty used to always send these form letters back, and then he decided that he was going to start having a little fun with it.
1: (laughs) This is my favorite idea. Like, if I were in his position sending form letters back, there is no way I would deny this. I don't care if I have factual data in front of me that's like, no alligators, like, this person is writing from Montreal. I will be sending them a letter that says their are alligators in our
0: sewers. Right, he wrote in to someone saying, As the resident expert on all matters relative to subterranean saurians, I can state with authority that there ain't no such animal. Rumors... How do they start? He also said, I could cite you many cogent logical reasons why the sewer system is not a fit habitat for an alligator, but suffice it to say that in the 28 years I've been in the sewer game, neither I nor any of the thousands of men who have worked to build, maintain, or repair the sewer systems has ever seen one. Now, Flattery also said that, his clear proof that no one has ever seen an alligator is that a, not a single union official has ever advanced alligator infestation as a reason for a pay increase for sewer workers.
1: Okay, that's really good evidence. That's Strong good evidence. Now, he went the other way with it. He was like, I'm just going to like make fun of you for thinking that it could be true. But I'm telling you, if I were doing his job, I would be like, yes, there are alligators. They have alligator parades. They wear hats. They are amazing. <laughs> they have organized into a society. They have a union. It's top notch.
0: We ride them in the sewers. We ride them. We've tamed a few.
1: Have you seen All Dogs Go to Heaven? You know that alligator sequence? That was in Louisiana. <laughs> it's like that every day, which is why I don't get to be John Flaherty.
0: <laughs> now, of course, alligators could not survive in the sewers of New York.
1: Well, it's cold. That's all I can think. Like, that's,
0: and that's important, but it's also a sewer. And they could not survive with the massive amount of salmonella and E. coli that you usually find in sewage. And also, like you said, they live at temperatures, they need to live at temperatures between like 80 and 90 degrees. Because they're
1: cold-blooded.
0: Yeah, that's an important point.
1: Also, I'm offended that people believe that alligators could survive in the sewers because I feel like that's saying that swamps look like sewage.
0: Fine, get offended. Offended. I'm so angry right
1: now. So offended. The swamps do look a little like sewage. They don't smell like sewage.
0: Uh, one pair of herpetologists, uh, Sherman and Madge, Rutherford Minton, in their book, Giant Reptiles.
1: Their names are Sherman and Madge.
0: Well, yeah. They're, like,
1: don't you know what they look like?
0: They're herpetologists. Okay,
1: but still. Like, don't you have the clearest mental image you've ever had of any two humans in your life? Like, I know what they do on Sundays.
0: Look in the sewers for alligators.
1: No, that's their weekday work. Sundays are their time. They do puzzles and crosswords, and they have tea. They don't drink coffee, and I grow mint in their backyard.
0: And New York white?
1: Yeah. Well, Sherm. (sighs) Sherm lets lets that top button of his shirt down. It's on. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
0: I think they were on Real Sex 23 1991.
1: Oh, no! Imagine! Sherm! Stop it. Put your clothes on. Okay, this is going to a strange place.
0: So back to the book. It said, one of the sillier folktales of the late 1960s was that the New York sewers were becoming infested with alligators. We would assure New Yorkers that alligators are not among their urban problems. Now, Jan von...
1: Bron, 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 Bron. make that sound.
0: So Jan Brandvand and another folklorist, Coleman, had this like back and forth trying to figure out where this came from. This was one of their urban legends they wanted to dig in. Yeah, They're the best. And so in the course of their work, they discover that there may be an even earlier example of this urban legend of alligators in the sewers of New York. Now, someone wrote in saying that filed away with their bound volume of the New York Evening Post was a single issue of a previously unknown newspaper. The title... The Planet, published in Union Village, New York, July 18th,
1: 1831. Wow, that, yeah. And it
0: was volume one, number one. They don't know if there are any more. Was
1: Clark Kent on the byline? I think so.
0: like- yeah. At any rate, in the midst of the news and the anecdotes in this paper, there was one that said a live alligator, it is said, was seen on Friday in the slip between Murray's and Pine Street wharves
1: in New York. Like, could it just not be an alligator? Like, could it be something that kind of looks like an alligator? Like, is that a thing that can happen? Like a log? Yeah. <laughs> or mean, like. It could
0: be. But I mean, look, we've got stories. We've got we've got tales from the thirties okay, where people fine. were finding alligators. But I mean, obviously, this is an urban legend. There's no massive amount of albino alligator smoking and pot and eating poop down under New York City.
1: Right, because they would become teenage mutant ninja alligators.
0: Right. Or Killer Croc.
1: (gasps) You're right. It's true after all.
0: But as folklorists point out, this is not necessarily an original legend. Meaning? Meaning that it could just be a local variant that has become the most popular one. Mm. But there are many, many stories of creatures living below the cities in the sewers.
1: When I think of sewers, I think of rats, not alligators. Like the rats that infested our house. Oh my god, the day we killed the rat. That's when I knew we were going to be married forever. That
0: would be on some screwed up version of America's Funniest Home Videos.
1: But we were not the only people to have ever had an encounter with a giant rat.
0: That I believe.
1: So there was a an outbreak, if you will, of giant rats in Tehran. Super-sized rats emerging from the sewers to roam the streets, some being up to 11 pounds. Tehran City Council Environment Advisor Ishmael Karam told an Iranian website that the rats seem to be mutated, possibly from chemicals in the sewer. Karam said the rats...
0: Mutated
1: rats? No! It's like Ninja Turtles. I know! Splinter. It is. They seem to have had a genetic mutation, probably as a result of radiations and the chemical used on them. They are now bigger and look different. These are changes that normally take millions of years of evolution. They have jumped from 60 grams to 5 kilos, and cats are now smaller than them.
0: Now we know who is running Iran. Mutated, super intelligent rats. It's the cause of all of our problems.
1: Well, they're the shadowy cabal, you understand.
0: Oh, yeah. Deep state. Deep state. Deep underground state.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David Baker. A friendly laboratory animal veterinarian from LSU told the Huffington Post... Wait,
0: why does LSU house all the experts on weird animals? We cited them in the birds episode.
1: Why not? Told the Huffington Post that it's unlikely that the rats got supersized as a result of mutation. Nearly all genetic mutations identified across the field of biology are harmful and confer a disadvantage to the species rather than an advantage. It's not like sci-fi movies, Baker said in an email.
0: Well, that's disappointing.
1: However, he pointed out that there are several species of, quote, giant rats found around the world that can achieve the sizes described by Karam because their growth plates don't don't fuse after puberty, Baker explained. Even common black rats can get very large. During the Middle Ages, black rats in Europe reportedly grew large enough and children were small enough to carry off babies. Those had to be some big rats.
0: Okay, that's scarier than alligators.
1: It is scarier than alligators. It's also... If they could carry babies, they were probably big. Thank you. Thank you for your expertise.
0: <laughs> Ooh, alumni. <laughs> so what did Iran do about this? I mean, they have super mutant rats.
1: Well, the municipal authorities have imported approximately 45 tons of poison, rat poison specifically, and set up informational tents to help deal with the plague. But in addition to poison, they've also, you know, got a few snipers. Oh, good. And apparently they hunt the rats by night and use rifles equipped with an infrared scope. IBT reported that 2,205 rats have been killed so far.
0: Wonderful.
1: So, worse than alligators? Worse than alligators. Yeah, they can
0: be sneaky. They can sneak into your home and get your baby.
1: Ah, why do they want my baby?
0: Hungry. So another sewer monster that's been making the rounds on the internet recently is the Cameron Village Sewer Blob. So in April of 2009, the company Malfourous Construction sent a surveillance camera into the sewer system beneath Cameron Village in Raleigh, North Carolina to examine the pipes. And they came across this otherworldly creature, a seething, pulsating, slimy blob attached to the walls of the pipe. And there's video footage. And you can see it online.
1: No. Yuck.
0: And it's real. Yuck. The video footage was confirmed as authentic.
1: It's a blob of what? What is it? It's just
0: like pulsating. It's an alien.
1: Uh Uh-uh. No. No. It's the thing or the blob. It's the blob. It's the blob. In North Carolina. (sighs) Apparently. Huh.
0: So, you know, some biologists did weigh in on what this might be. At first, I thought it might be like a fat blob. You know how they get those big, like, fat bergs?
1: No, no, I don't know that.
0: Like, these giant blobs of fat will, like, gather together and block sewage pipelines. Ah! But a North Carolina State University biologist, Thomas Quack, felt that they might be thousands of tiny organisms called bryozoans or moss animacules. And these are, like, invertebrates. And they bunch together in colonies and feed with these tiny tentacles.
1: But how big was the blob?
0: I don't know, it's like fits in a pipe. What kind of pipe? I don't know. So Dr. Timothy Wood, an expert on these <laughs> bryozoa, thinks that they may be something different. Saying they are clumps of annelid worms. Uh-uh. Like tubafix worms, like tube worms. And normally these occur in soil and sediment, especially at the bottom and edges of polluted streams. In the photo, they have apparently entered a pipeline somehow, and in the absence of soil, they are coiling around each other. The contraction you see are the results of a single worm contracting and then stimulating all the others to do the same almost simultaneously. So it looks like a single big muscle contracting.
1: Somebody bought a tapeworm and flushed it. Gross.
0: That would not work.
1: What do you mean it wouldn't work? Like it wouldn't make you lose weight, or it wouldn't make you, like, it wouldn't make a blob?
0: It wouldn't make a blob.
1: So these are not like tapeworms.
0: No, they're like invertebrate worms, like tube worms. I
1: don't know what that means.
0: Well, you need to. Let's go sit on the couch, get some New York white, and I'll show you.
1: It sounds gross.
0: (laughs) It is. I'll post the video. I don't
1: know. Okay, so in further considering animals that could potentially live in a sewer, it may seem an unlikely choice, but my next nomination for more likely than alligators is pigs. Pigs. Pigs eat poop. Not solely. I bet they wouldn't die.
0: Where are there pigs in the sewers?
1: Hempstead. Huh? The black swine in the sewers of Hempstead.
0: Oh my gosh, this is frightening.
1: So in the Daily Telegraph from October 10th of 1859. Victorians. Yes. damn it. Yes. This London has an amalgam of worlds within worlds, and the occurrences of every day convince us that there is not one of these worlds but has its special mysteries and generic crimes, exaggeration and ridicule often attached to the vastness of London and the ignorance of its penetralia, common to us who dwell therein. It has been said that the beasts of, of chase still roam in the verdant fastnesses of Grosvenor Square, and there, an undiscovered patches of primeval forest in Hyde Park and the Hempstead's sewers shelter a monstrous breed of black swine. They have propagated and run wild in the slimy feculence, and whose ferocious snouts will one day uproot Highgate Archway and make Holloway intolerable with their grunting. That's frightening. Sewer pigs coming for us. They're going to uproot... Let me just say it again uproot the Highgate archway
0: oh yeah definitely I
1: mean they're plotting pigs
0: oh this is not good they're just as smart as humans
1: right <laughs> right So there's a rumor circulating in London in the mid 19th century that the sewers of Hempstead were infested with pigs and these pigs were all the descendants of a pregnant sow who was unfortunately lost deep in the tunnels and gave birth underground. The latter thrived on filth, and garbage that were readily available in the sewers. Why would a pregnant sow roam into the sewers at Hempstead? Apparently, lots of people had black pigs. A yard pig. Why not?
0: I mean, everyone's chickens now.
1: North Kensington reportedly had pigs outnumbering people at three to one at this time.
0: So a runaway pig gets in the sewers.
1: Runaway pig, piggy on the loose, piggy's day out. Gets lost. Sounds like a children's book. Piggy's Day Out. Yeah, I, sh- I should write this. Henry Mayhew discusses the story of the Lunt in London Labour and the London Poor. Direct observation of and interviews with its subjects among the scavengers who make a living collecting valuable, reusable materials amidst the city's multifarious waste products are sewer hunters.
0: Wait, what? They had people in the sewers hunting for things?
1: Well, they were like, you know. Getting things that were recyclable and useful, like gathering cans and shopping carts, you know that. I don't think they
0: had cans back then. No,
1: know, but like that. Who scour the sewers for coins, cutlery, and other objects. Numbers of rumors, including black swine. The story runs that a sow in young, by some accident, got down in the sewer through an opening and, wandering away from the spot, littered and reared her offspring in the drain, feeding on the awful and the garbage washed into it continuously. Here, it is alleged that the breed multiplied exceedingly, and have become almost as ferocious as they are numerous. Oh, no. However, the author's general attitude toward this report is quite skeptical. He goes on to say, What seems strange about the matter is that the inhabitants of Hampstead have never been known to see any of these animals pass beneath the gratings, nor have... They've been disturbed by their gruntings.
0: Can you imagine walking down the street and like hearing it you?
1: I'm coming for
0: you. (laughs) We all float down here. Coming for that archway, bitch.
1: What? (laughs) And why? Why are they American pigs?
0: (laughs) They're much scarier.
1: Now, it is also important to inform you that the sewer hunters themselves have never yet encountered any of the fabulous monsters of the Hampstead Sewers they are fabulous now? Fabulous is in cunf like no. Like fantastic. No, fabulous. No, you're right. They are fabulous. So I guess it's like I'm coming for your archway. <laughs> Girl. Now, Neil Gaiman wrote a bit about this and I do love Neil Gaiman in Neverwhere. Now, they say that back before fire and plague there was a butcher who lived down on by the Fleet Ditch and had some poor creature He was going to fatten up for Christmas. Some says it was a piglet Some says it wasn't, and there was some that wasn't even certain. One night, the beast runned away and ran into the fleet ditch and vanished into the sewers and fed on sewage. And it grew and grew, and it got meaner and nastier, and they send out hunting parties after it from time to time. Things like that. But they're too vicious to die. Too old, too big, and too nasty.
0: So there are other rumors such as a race of fierce cats living in the sewers of Montreal. That
1: I buy because there are rats in the sewer, and that would be a good place to live. You're going to be a mean cat. But
0: it is interesting that there are so many urban legends to do with our sewer system, our It
1: Sounds like a medical condition when you say it. What's well, what the Daily
0: Telegraph <laughs> called it? The hidden places under our feet.
1: I know, but when specifically when you say it, it sounds like a disease. I think Sorry. it's just because I'm used to you saying things that sound like diseases because they are.
0: But the history of our sewers and sanitation is very interesting because, obviously, trying to get rid of this waste and awful and all these terrible things would lead to a safer, healthier environment.
1: And we've been working on that for quite a while,
0: We have. You know, the ancients, as we could call them, knew that there was definitely an advantage to getting our shit away from
1: us. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's unpleasant. We don't, you know, like, I don't think there's, people say everybody, like, smell their own shit, but I don't believe that's true.
0: Well, so, even the Stone Age Orkney Islands, some of these stone huts had drains built under them, and some houses had cubicles over the drains, and they may have been, like, little toilets. Smart people. In ancient Egypt, they had limestone indoor outhouses, and they kind of pooped into sand.
1: Like a litter box.
0: Yeah, and just like cats, they had slaves to come and clean it out.
1: The poor people didn't. Only the only the wealthy Egyptians had that service. Of course.
0: Uh, the Minoans had water flush toilets in 2600 BC, and in 2000 BC, the ancient indo aryan had a water purification system. And in the Indus Valley civilization of Pakistan and northwestern India, from 2600 to 1900 BCE, they had these extensive, sophisticated public works that included sewage training systems, public wells, private and public baths. Now, the Chinese wrote about it in 200 BC, saying, "...it's more important to prevent illness than to cure the illness when it has arisen." and they cited that having clean water was known to be important in disease prevention, so wells were covered, and devices were used to filter water. Cool. And they had a group of sanitary police that removed all animals and human corpses from the waterways and buried all the bodies found on land.
1: Interesting. They were on top of shit. Ha. Ha. Ah. Ha.
0: Now, the Romans really put some major public works into effect. So in 300 BC to 400 AD, there was a system of aqueducts built in ancient Rome. And of course you can still see some of these today. And they provided inhabitants with fresh running water, which was piped directly to homes of the wealthy and to public fountains and baths. So this greatly improved domestic sanitation and disposal of waste. So the greatest... Uh, and first of the major sewer systems they built was the cloaca maxima cloaca yes like what a bird has
1: like what a bird poops and has eggs out of like the the bird hole
0: yeah the bird hole
1: i'm not liking this why don't want to talk about bird holes with you
0: well no the latin origin of the word either means like waste or like to cleanse ah so this was constructed in the 6th century bc and The main function of the sewers was to drain the farm, which is periodically flooded by the Tiber. And it was actually the main sanitation system for the city until the 19th century.
1: Holy cow.
0: Now originally they had canals that were covered to create the first sewer system and then they created the 11 aqueducts which supplied water to Rome by the 1st century AD where they finally channeled into the sewers after supplying the many public baths and fountains. So... As Romans were wont to do, there was a god, goddess of the sewer system.
1: Okay, so I kind of got the worst job.
0: She was the gla- goddess Cloacina.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: So she was the goddess of the Cloaca Maxima.
1: I'm going to be here riding my alligator. I will sign autographs at 3 p.m. Please do not touch my tiara.
0: And now a shrine was built in her honor in the farm in front of the Basilica Emilia. Directly above the Cloaca Maxima sewer. And it's believed that this may have been even the entrance way into it, say the manhole.
1: Yeah, like really, there are people who get to be like the goddess of, you know, love or hearth and home or wisdom.
0: Well, interestingly, she is cited in some sources as the goddess of marital intercourse.
1: Yeah, like I have the worst job.
0: <laughs> and that may be related to her original Etruscan origin
1: yeah like i get married people sex and poop thanks
0: she's even featured on coins from 44 bce
1: i didn't have anything else going on that day and i was like sure i'll sit for some money portraits whatever just
0: god but the ancient romans believed that the sewers weren't just removing the waste from the city they were also purging rome of evil as well as preventing disease and flooding
1: yeah, so like I convinced people that poop is evil and now I get to be on money.
0: So, according to Dr. Mark Bradley, an associate professor of ancient history at Nottingham University, the bodies of criminals and, and deposed tyrants were often thrown into the sewers as a ceremonial act.
1: Let's put this shit back where it belongs, I Exactly.
0: Say. Yeah. And as stories go, these include an emperor Elagabalus and Saint Sebastian.
1: Oh, I love his paintings though. I love the paintings of him. He didn't do paintings.
0: So he said, these sewers are sacred in part because they flush waste out of the city. They cleanse the city and make the city pure. And points to the shrines marking particular points and junctions in the sewer system. So the ancients definitely had an idea of hygiene and understood that good hygiene and getting rid of crap away from civilization led to a healthier society. Now, as... Rome falls and the dark ages come across Europe that does not exactly stick with us.
1: So in medieval castles there were rudimentary toilets called garderobes that were simply like kind of long shoot outhouses that went out into the moat usually.
0: Another reason not to cross the moat.
1: <laughs> no cross the moat. And wealthy people at this times wiped their behinds with rags. Because they could afford to replace them, while poor people used a plant called mullein, or woolly mullein. I don't want to wipe my booty with woolly mullein. No. <laughs> in 1596, John Harrington invented a flushing toilet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> like really, my favorite invention. <laughs> so happy not to have to be with the woods.
0: That and toilet paper.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank God it's not a Sears and Roebuck because I would have to tell Spanish Lake so- uh, sermons just like my dad does. And my dad was seriously scarred by having to use Sears and Roebuck catalogs. I've heard the story. Yeah, so many I know. Times. I know. Like a lot, but not,
0: not literally scarred.
1: <laughs> maybe. Not I, I don't know.
0: Maybe he was, and that's why he keeps telling the story.
1: But flushing toilets were like a novelty item. They did not catch on until the late 19th century. But there was another popular waste removal system that was used in in the 19th century, and it was called an earth closet. Okay. And it was a box of granulated clay over a pan, and you would pull a lever. Clay would cover the new contents in the pan.
0: So, another litter box. Another
1: litter box contraption. I mean, they literally
0: have litter boxes that do that.
1: (laughs) Yes. And these were around until the early 20th century in some rural areas. But into the 19th centuries, toilet pans were made of porcelain. And being in the homes of wealthier people, they were usually very well decorated, like painted, and like China.
0: That's where like going and sit on the throne comes from?
1: I guess so. They were embossed or painted with attractive colors, and seats were made of wood, and cisterns were often emptied by pulling a chain. Now, the first modern public lavatory with flush toilets opened in London in 1852. If you read about the history of toilets, you will come across the fun factoid that Thomas Crapper... Invented the toilet.
0: Okay, that's got to be an urban legend. It. Crapper.
1: Is. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of.
0: Because you already said Harrington invented
1: it. Right. Now, curtis- this comes courtesy of Plumbing and Mechanical Magazine from June 1993.
0: I also got my information from Plumbing Magazines.
1: Their hits are going up and they're like, what, what the <laughs> hell, Bob? Three people this week? I think we've been hacked. It's Russia. So, according to a popular myth, Thomas Crapper was the inventor of the modern toilet. However, according to Dr. Indy Gibbons, a historian of the International Thomas Crapper Society. and no, Yeah, no, it's true. And Ken Grabowski, a researcher and author who is writing a book on Crapper's life. There was, in fact, a man named Thomas Crapper. Okay. And he was born around 1836, and he was a plumber in England from 1861 until 1904 The date of Crapper's death seems to be January 17th, 1910 because Thomas Crapper Day is celebrated on January 17th. However, this author believes that it was actually the 27th and has lobbied seemingly successful in 1993. I need to go check updates. I have not. um,
0: Poor research. To
1: see if it's been moved, but he was lobbying to have it changed to the 27th. I don't know if that ever came to pass. If you celebrate Thomas Crapper Day... Let me know.
0: I'm going to now.
1: Now, he did not invent the toilet. However, he did have many patents in his name for improvements.
0: So maybe he invented like the modern toilet.
1: Well, it was like the mechanism that allows you to flush the when the cistern is halfway full instead of having to wait for it to fill all the way back up. That kind of stuff. So, if whatever the case may be, he did have some affiliation with toilet inventing. Thomas Crapper did serve as the royal sanitary engineer for many members of England's royalty. But he was never knighted. Because a lot of people say that he was Sir Thomas Crapper, the inventor of the toilet. No, alas, never knighted by the queen. No, the thought is that the term Crapper became so... Completely and totally associated with toilets during World War One, when the Doughboys were in England, and they would go to the toilet and saw Crapper's name on it, like you see Scott on the toilet paper roll dispenser or whatever, and begin calling it the Crapper.
0: Yeah, like, we call Kleenex.
1: Yeah. And so, the silly Americans didn't know who Thomas Crapper was, because they're so, they're such dumb yanks, and now it's all been collapsed. And that is the story of Thomas Crapper.
0: Now I knew about Harrington because the kids were watching Peabody and Sherman, and he helps rescue something. Oh, it's a ridiculous show; it's great.
1: <laughs> I love the way our three-year-old says Peabody and Sherman.
0: But as you would see in any older movie or anything, you think like Oliver Twist. You know the cities at the time were disgusting. They didn't have really any proper sewers yet, like in London and. New York City in the 1800s, and people would just kind of throw their bedpans out the window. Or chamber pots. Yes. So, you know, they would have large cesspools where they could go throw their waste, and people would just throw everything there, and they just also, leave dead animals out on the streets.
1: Horses, horse-drawn yeah. carriages, horses pooping in the streets all the time. Every You ever been to a parade? Then you've seen a horse poop as it walks by. They just keep going. And this... Imagine instead of all of the cars on the roads, there were pooping horses. That's a lot of poop.
0: So there were these large cesspools. There was very little sanitation going on in the city, especially not in the not wealthy areas. And with all of this poor sanitation comes... Disease. 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 Because at this time, they knew that all of these diseases were caused by miasma...
1: I imagine that poor sanitation is, like, the guy who is going to be at the party no matter what. Like, when you have this many people together, he's going to show up. If there's a party, he's there. And his friend that he drags along with him that everyone cannot stand is disease. And they're just, like, a package deal.
0: Oh, yeah, they are a package deal. And they're
1: like, oh, my God, look, poor sanitation's here. Everyone knew that was going to happen. Oh no, and he brought his friend. That guy is such a buzzkill. Disease is here too.
0: That's the weirdest analogy I've ever heard in my life. It's what
1: I'm here for.
0: But you know, at the time, they thought disease was caused by all sorts of things. There was no unified theory. There was no accepted germ theory yet in the mid-1800s.
1: Then I would like to rectify my analogy to better reflect that reality. There actually a couple of lovers and no one's caught on to it yet and they're like oh my god look it's poor sanitation oh my god disease is here too weird i think he comes because of miasma. i think he has a crush on her you guys you guys i think he totally has a crush on her he's here to see her and in reality he's there with poor sanitation
0: you're right you know you topped that weird analogy So between 1831 and 1854, tens of thousands of people in England died of cholera. So physicians at the time thought cholera was passed, like I said, through like miasma, through breathing bad air.
1: How does one get bad air?
0: You breathe it.
1: <laughs> well, no, like how does the air become bad? Other people breathing it? Poor people breathing it? Probably so. Okay, Okay. so I'm familiar with cholera in the insofar as I have died from it on Oregon Trail, but what is it?
0: It causes you to die from dehydration through diarrhea. You poop yourself to death. You poop yourself to death. Yuck. it's fantastic. So, in 1854, England had this huge cholera epidemic that broke out, killed 616 people. So, enter our hero, Doctor Doctor John Snow. What? John Snow.
1: He knows nothing.
0: Oh, but he does. He
1: knows nothing. He's not going to solve this problem.
0: Oh, he does. So he was pretty sure he knew what was causing this cholera outbreak.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. But he knows nothing. so.
0: So at the time, people were using communal wells and they dumped raw sewage, animal waste directly into the Thames and into the open cesspools that were everywhere. So this outbreak occurred near Soho, where he lived. Within 250 yards of the spot where Cambridge Street joins Broad Street, there were upward of 500 fatal attacks of cholera in 10 days, Dr. Snow wrote. As soon as I became acquainted with the situation and extent of the eruption of cholera, I suspected some contamination of the water of the much-frequented street pump on Broad Street.
1: Okay, clearly this guy knows nothing. Shut him up and send him back to the wall. Let's get on with the series. Chop, chop.
0: So he started to kind of investigate. And he started to ask people who got cholera and their family if they'd been using this Broad Street pump.
1: Mm -hmm. So he's going to houses and he's like, are you shitting yourself to death? And they're like, yes, sir, we are. Have you used the Broad Street pump?
0: We go to the hospitals too.
1: Okay, fair.
0: And so according to Snow's records, the keeper of one coffee shop in the neighborhood who served glasses of water from the Broad Street pump along with the meals said she knew of nine of her customers who contracted cholera. There was also a popular bubbly drink at the time called sherbet, which was a spoonful of powder that fizzed when mixed with water. Mm -hmm. And in the Broad Street area of Soho, that water usually came from...
1: The Broad Street pump.
0: Exactly. So he actually created this geographical grid to chart the deaths from the outbreaks and investigated each case to see if they had drunk from the
1: pump. He is doing epidemiology. Like, he's on to it, man. He
0: is basically the inventor of epidemiology.
1: But he knows nothing.
0: That's what they kept telling him. (laughs) So, he also had a negative control. So, he had a workhouse, aka a prison, near Soho that had 535 inmates, but no cholera.
1: Okay, now the people at the workhouse don't have it. It's not from breathing poor people air.
0: Yeah, because they had their own well, and they also bought water from the Grand Junction Waterworks.
1: Bottled water is such a scheme.
0: There was also a brewery that was on Broad Street, which made malt liquor, and none of the workers there got cholera.
1: Because they didn't drink water, they drank beer? Yes. Holla!
0: <laughs> they drank their own product, and then they also had their own well.
1: Oh, well, that helps too. Oh, well. <laughs> right? They called me, tell me too drunk, but I'm not, tell me too shit, because I'm too drunk.
0: So there was one case that kind of troubled him. Because it was a case of two women, a niece and her aunt, who died of cholera, but they lived far from Soho.
1: Oh, well, it seems to throw the whole thing off.
0: Right, but he found out by talking to the woman's son that the mother used to live near the Broad Street pump and loved the way the water tasted. And so every time they were in the area, they would stop and get a drink.
1: May I ask what might be giving that water that particular flavor? I feel like it's probably poop. Is it poop? It's It's poop. poop. It's It's
0: so poop. And lots of other gross things.
1: So she she was fond of, of poop water.
0: Gives it a nice little je ne sais quoi. So on September seventh, eighteen fifty four, he finally convinced the town officials who kept telling him
1: You know nothing, Jon
0: Snow to take the handle off the Broad Street pump. They did it. Cholera dropped off dramatically.
1: You're wrong. You're wrong about how the story went. He was like, I believe we should take the pump off and they're like, You know nothing, John Snow And he's like, I believe we should take the pump off and they're like it will never happen and in the dead of night alone he enters the square and confronts the pump as king Arthur once confronted the sword and the stone and he reaches down and pulls it off single-handedly and cures cholera yeah sure that's how it happened
0: in the BBC2 version of it.
1: He holds it up above his head, like very Luke Skywalker on the poster. It's a whole thing.
0: So interestingly, he still was having trouble convincing everybody that it was from the tainted water.
1: Even after he took the pump off and everybody stopped yes. having... Really?
0: So Reverend Henry Whitehead... Set out to disprove his theory because this must be God's divine intervention.
1: This has got to be religious at this point. Like it's got to be zealous fervor.
0: So Reverend Whitehead interviewed a woman who lived at Forty Broad Street, whose child had contracted cholera from some other source, but the child's mother had washed the baby di- baby's diapers in water, which she then dumped into the, a leaky cesspool just three feet from the Broad Street pump. Reverend Whitehead did not realize that he had found...
1: Patient zero.
0: Patient zero.
1: Reverend Whitehead, it must be God's will that you're so stupid because you just proved this. Exactly. To be true.
0: So after many years, Jon Snow is able to start off the movement for sanitation in London.
1: This man should be a saint. Like. If someone can be a martyr for science, as we've discussed in other episodes, this man should give oh, he scientific is. Like sainthood. You,
0: you hear about it in your micro classes, your med school, all of that. I mean, he basically is like the inventor of epidemiology.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: And of course, German physician Robert Koch later isolates bacteria, Vibrio cholera, along with germ theory coming about, Louis Pasteur, all that fun stuff. Also to note, Dr. Snow was actually an obstetrician, and he also helped invent anesthesia for... Delivering babies.
1: That man is a saint. A saint, <laughs> I tell you. So he knows everything. <laughs> Redeemed.
0: So New York sanitation, one of the other great cities in the world, was no better. The city in its early points had pigs and other animals roaming freely. Garbage, industrial waste, just discarded any and everywhere. There was a yellow fever and outbreak in 1798 that the residents actually attributed to contaminated water, which I'm sorry to tell them. They were wrong. Is mosquitoes. (laughs) So it probably was related to having large, open, still water bodies of water, but not...
1: Not in the way they thought. Exactly.
0: But our old friend, Aaron Burr, is going to help the situation.
1: Said you for the first time ever. Aaron Burr is only good for one thing. Making messes he can't clean up and shooting secretaries of the treasury. I guess that's two things. No, that's still a mess he couldn't clean up.
0: Well, he established the Manhattan Company... And his goal was to pipe fresh water into the city from Worcester County. And while this didn't help anybody, he did use the profits that he got from the Manhattan Company to establish a bank to compete with...
1: Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. Yes. For 10 points. So in
0: 1832, it was said that one could smell the city from six miles away. I believe it. And that new year, New York had its own cholera outbreak... And that cholera outbreak, along with the inadequate water to fight the Great Fire of 1835, the city finally decided to do something.
1: Always swift to action, that city.
0: Uh, They established the Croton Aqueduct in 1842, along with a fountain at City Hall that shot water 50 feet into the air.
1: That's what they did?
0: Yeah, but it supplied clean public water up until the 1940s.
1: (laughs) How would you get water? You'd walk up with a jug and fill it? All right. I guess I never think of fountains being, like, of actual municipal use.
0: Yeah, I mean, but New York had become one of the dirtiest cities in the world by the late 19th century, with death rates that were comparable to those of medieval London. So as we go from miasma to germ theory, and we start figuring all this out, in 1881, they actually established a street cleaning department.
1: That is a great story that we'll tell another day.
0: Yes, yes, I mean, they have the white suits, they have a Civil War colonel, he like creates this army of sanitation workers and they literally clean the streets and help sanitation greatly. In 1903 street cleaners were paraded through the streets of New York and sanitation workers were cheered because of what a great impact they made on the city.
1: So do you want to know a story? Sure. So when I was a senior in high school, A certain group of us were selected to participate in the mayor's youth council and there was a day where you were assigned a department and you went out with a city official and learned about your local government
0: hooray leslie nope
1: yes it was a very leslie nope moment of mine and i was super excited about it because i'm that kid and my friends went with me and we got to miss the day of school and one of my friends got to go to the tv station and one of my friends went to the mayor's office and one of my friends like sat in with the judge.
0: See, I would have done that. I would have like been so excited because I got to miss a day of school. I went to an anti-abortion parade because I got out of school
1: Jacob.
0: for a day. I had the- You went to
1: Catholic school. Well,
0: I had the highest grades in religion because it was a history class.
1: <laughs>
0: and so I got to go and I was like, sure. <laughs>
1: oh, I feel like I should have known this before I married you. Anyway. So what did you get to do? I got to drive the street sweeper.
0: So jealous.
1: Which I called the cat scraper. They so put me there on purpose. Like I know they did. And the guys were really nice and they did let me drive it. But my friends were like coming back and like, I got to be on TV. I get to did it. I got to like convict a criminal. I get to and I was like, I didn't drive the street sweeper. <laughs> That's what I did. And I was not paraded through the streets.
0: (laughs) Well, in New York, on Broad Street, originally it was a large cesspool. (laughs) Literally. Classy. It was open and it was a canal established by the Dutch.
1: So it was basically their latrine.
0: Yeah. The British put a stone roof over the canal and they start getting these private sewers that were established to drain to the river. And then you had the aqueducts with water coming in. Then... In 1850s, you f- they finally start to build the infamous <laughs> New York sewers. Mm. And they continue to build and continue to build. And today we have 7,000 miles of sewers under New York City.
1: Holy hell.
0: And there's very little pumping. It's mostly done through gravity because they had the guys that designed the aqueducts design the sewers.
1: Well, that's one less thing to break, right?
0: And most of the original pipes are still in use today.
1: I feel like you're king of the sewers.
0: King of shit mountains. So we've been talking about sanitation and sewers and creatures living under the sewers. And there's no clear and definitive answer. Of course, there never is in folklore (laughs) as to why we tell these stories. These stories of creatures living in the sewers. Some people say it's related to this bestial aspect of nature that we've suppressed or expelled so we can achieve our urban civilization, but it never can go away, and it's waiting, waiting to come back.
1: Man the Hunter. It's very Man the Hunter, that one.
0: And, of course, some folklorists say this marginalized world insistently resurfaces, for example, as carnival images and Freudian neuroses...
1: (laughs) I feel like we've covered that recently.
0: But, you and I have a different theory. That this could be related to the impolite. Mm -hmm. The periphery. Something that impolite to talk about. But for some reason we always are. (laughs)
1: Let's talk about poop.
0: Also known as? Scat. Or scatology.
1: Scatological imagery. Very important. In a surprising amount of literature. (laughs) So, Yes, our theory revolves more around the actual use of the sewers. Our theory is more about the place where we put our waste, the things that we don't want to talk about, the things that are gross and disgusting, and we flush them away and put them out of our mind. And then we have these creatures that come, and they dwell in this place where we have put our unwanted and become nasty and big and mean and mutate and grow, and they're coming to uproot our arches and carry away our babies. Frightening. They thrive in that which we can't even tolerate. Monsters.
0: Yeah, they are the like personification of it.
1: Yeah. That brings us to the literary phenomenon of scatological imagery. Now, this is a form, again, of the grotesque. Shocking, I know. But if you remember, grotesque comes from grotto, which is like caves, which is baths, which has to do with sanitation, cleaning sewers, etc. And so this is kind of a literary cousin to the grotesque aesthetic which we discussed in our Boogeyman episode. Now, it's characterized by obscenity, preoccupation with obscenity, especially from references to excrement. Now, attitudes toward excrement in high culture have changed considerably over time. Really? (laughs) Really. Now, there was a moment... When bodily fluids were regarded as precious bodily fluids.
0: Precious bodily fluids. The commies. The commies. And
1: now I'm going to read to you from Dr. Strangelove, which you should see. If you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove. Pause. Go watch it and tell me that's not Steve Bannon. But anyway. (laughs) In Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film, the base commander, Jack D. Ripper, has a minor to, no, a full-fledged obsession with his precious bodily fluids and some of his choice monologues i can no longer sit back and allow the communist infiltration communist indoctrination communist subversion and the international communist conspiracy to sap and purify all of our precious bodily fluids another do you realize that in addition to fluoridating water there are studies underway to fluoridate salt flour Fruit juice? Soap? Sugar? Milk? Ice cream? Ice cream, Mandrake! Children's ice cream. You know when fluoridation began? 1946. 1946, Mandrake. How does that coincide with your post-war commie conspiracy, huh? It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without knowledge of the individual and certainly without any choice. And that's the way your hardcore commie works. I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Yes, a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, women sense my power, and they seek my life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I, I do deny them my essence that's so ridiculous i think it's fabulous but here i do think it's important to pause for a moment and look at the anxiety over public works public tampering with our bodily systems oh
0: i think that's another episode
1: no but it, it i i would say that like clean water filtered water it's like you have to have a certain amount of trust you're allowing the public sphere into your private sphere
0: it's a tenuous trust
1: but anyway Precious bodily fluids, I couldn't say the phrase and not do the monologue, so you're welcome for that.
0: So what were people doing with these precious bodily fluids that made it so positive?
1: Well, in 1693, there was a book written called Drecka which was German, and it translates to The Filth Pharmacy. I think there's
0: a porn site with that name. Oh, probably.
1: Ew. Now, they claim to cure all diseases from head to feet using human and animal excrement and secretions. And it cataloged folk remedies from bygone eras. And it did this in 1693, so you can imagine how scientific these remedies were.
0: Folk remedies.
1: Yes. And it was written by Christian Franz Polini. This is its original pitch. Translated. Expanded. Beneficial Filth Pharmacy. How, in particular, one can successfully cure almost all, even the most difficult, most poisonous diseases and bewitched injuries from head to feet, inside and out, with filth and urine, with all sorts of rare as well as useful and entertaining stories. But even before this was published, the Romans were making great use of urine— They used it for all sorts of things, like whitening their teeth. And the author Columella wrote that old human urine was particularly good for growing pomegranates, and it made them juicier and tastier. Yum. It was also used in fulleries, or laundries, where there were vats of urine used to wash togas. And they were put in the vats of urine, and people would jump up and down on them. And then there was a second stage which included applying dirt or ash to the toga, and this would bring the colors back to their original brightness. And interestingly enough, it was also used for curing animal maladies. Sheep with bile problems were given human urine to drink. Sheep with lung issues were given urine through the nose. And it was also said to be useful for curing sick bees or avian flu, like in birds, not in humans. And it was applied to the beak in that case. It was also used for tanning leather. Now, this practice continued well past Rome. Urine was very useful for removing hair from pelts. While feces, and some of the bacteria in it specifically, was used to soften the leather. And it was also used as fertilizer. Mostly in private gardens, not in commercial farming. And it was referred to as night soil. Which sounds like a zombie novel. The Emperor Vespasian actually levied a tax on urine in 70 CE and his son Titus was very offended by this tax on urine it offended his delicate sensibilities this idea of acknowledging let alone taxing such a horrid thing and Vespasian replied to him money doesn't stink and it was such a famous tax in fact that the general term for public urinals is still Vespacians in French and Vespasiana in Italy.
0: How would you like your name to go down as a public urinal?
1: He gets the best job.
0: Crapper. Vespasian. It's
1: not much of a legacy, but you know, it's mine. And the French had this phrase, which was akin to like, oh, I wish he would, I guess. Like, that's my personal interpretation of it. But the phrase was, I would like to see his urine, which was Why? invoked because a man's urine was supposed to reveal his true merits.
0: Oh, yeah. Medicine loved that. Yeah. <laughs> Early days. We know, back in Civil War times, they would use urine and stool and manure um, to create gunpowder. So they would take a large amount of manure And leave it out and apply ammonia Mm -hmm. in the form of urine. Mm -hmm. And they would let it sit out in the sun and react and rot. And you would create saltpeter crystals
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: use that to make gunpowder, which they used a lot of in the Civil War.
1: No, really? I'm sorry. I'm stuck on this. Like, where? How? They had, like, a place to do this? Or was this, like, a backyard project?
0: No, they did that officially.
1: I needed to know that before I could move on. But going back to this phrase... I would like to see his urine, which I can imagine the thing the guy on the wall in Monty Python saying, I would like to see your urine. We use a lot of excremental phrases. Like for people who no don't. Shit. Yeah, exactly. For people who like supposedly don't like talking about pooping and peeing, we talk about it a lot or we say it a lot.
0: And we're not going to talk about Freud.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. But there are phrases that are quite innocent, like, oh, you're pooped, like you're tired or does a bear shit in the woods or stepping in a
0: Oh, you're pissed off.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Or shitting the bed, which is one I use that I don't know where it comes from.
0: Shit hits the fan.
1: Yes, exactly. But there are a couple of my favorites that I really did not know where the phrase came from, and I found today, and I wanted to share with you all. Piss poor. Right. Love that one. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this comes from the collection of urine for tanning animal hides, and families used to all pee in the same pot and collect as much urine as possible, and... Someone would take it to the tannery and sell it.
0: That's a great side hustle. Right? It's easier than a podcast.
1: Right? And when a family had to do this in order to survive, they were called... Piss poor. Right. And don't even have a pot to piss in.
0: So is that related to the same thing?
1: Yes. These were the people who were too poor to buy the pot to collect the urine to be piss poor. They were aspiring to piss poor.
0: (laughs) One day, Samantha, we'll be able to afford that pot to piss in. Then we'll be in the big leagues.
1: Now, one famous for his use of scatological imagery is Jonathan Swift.
0: Man, he loved to push boundaries.
1: He really did.
0: Let's eat some babies. Let's play with some poop.
1: Let's get tied up by lily pushins. What have you. It happens. So in one of his poems, Description of a City Shower, he concludes with this lovely verse city shower also not a shower like bathing like rain before we begin now from all parts the swelling kennels flow and bear their trophies with them as they go filth of all hues and odors seem to tell what street they sailed from by their sight and smell they as each torrent drives with rapid force from smithfield or saint plucher's shape their course and in huge confluence joined at snow hill ridge fall from the conduit, prone to Holborn Bridge. Sweeping from the butcher's stall, dung, guts, and blood. Drowned puppies, stinking sprats, all drenched in mud. Dead cats and turnip tops, come tumbling down the flood.
0: that just shows just the nature of the sanitation of the time, too, that we were talking about. Right. Just describes it perfectly.
1: Yes. And that is him working large scale large-scale gross. And this is very much like a critique on society. And he's talking about people trying to get out of the rain and not get wet while all of this nastiness is flowing around them. And it's like, really, you're trying to keep the stink off of you? Like, what are you trying to do here? (laughs) And this poem was written in 1710. And it's 63 lines long and takes on a very epic tone, despite the mundane subject matter of people in the city of London trying to get out of a rain shower. And this is Part of a neoclassical movement that was happening at the time, but he is satirizing it. The product of this epic struggle is literally waste. And it highlights not only the squalid conditions of urban life, but the pointlessness and vanity of it, I guess. Definitely a lot
0: of scatological imagery there.
1: Right. To me, that's a very quick summary. Like, what is scatological imagery? Dead puppies, blood and guts, and turnip tops. Like, that's kind of it. Eschatological imagery kind of addresses our own disgust with our bodies, but it functions as a mechanism of catharsis because it's happening to someone else. And it serves to, like, kind of mm, humanize people, I guess.
0: Puts everybody on the same level. Everybody poops.
1: Everybody poops. Like death, poop is the great equalizer.
0: Death, poop, and taxes?
1: Yeah, kind (sighs) of. And so it's very humbling, it's very shocking to talk about these things especially in 1710 and when he applies this vocabulary i guess to personal characters to individuals instead of larger society it takes on a really interesting tone
0: so in the 1731 poem strephon and chloe we meet chloe this this perfect woman of Chloe all the town has rung by every size of poet sung-so beautiful a nymph appears but once in twenty thousand years-by nature formed with nicest care and faultless to a single hair-her graceful mien her shape and face confessed her of no mortal race-and then so nice and so genteel-such cleanliness from head to heel-no humors gross or frowsy steams, no noisome whiffs or sweaty streams. Before, behind, above, below, could from her taintless body flow, would so discreetly things dispose, none ever saw her pluck arose. Her dearest comrades never caught her squat in her hands to make maids water. Really? Yeah, keep going. <laughs> You'd swear that so divine a creature felt no necessities of nature. In summer, had she walked the town, her armpits would not stain her gown. At country dances, not a nose could in the dog-days smell her toes. Her milk-white hands, both palm and backs, like ivory, dry as soft as wax. Her hands, the softest ever felt. Their cold would burn. though dry would melt. So she goes on to marry Streffen, this manly man, who is both enticed by her nymphly beauty, only one in every twenty thousand years, but also intimidated because she's perfect. She only glistens.
1: Girls don't poop. I hate that. Or sweat. Yeah, hate that one too, especially living here. <laughs> And on their wedding night, they're about to consummate their marriage. And through much elaborate verse, we realize that Chloe has had 12 cups of tea and needs to pee. She needs to pee. She needs to pee. She needs to pee. And she has to kind of hold Strephon at bay and use her chamber pot. But he gallantly responds by going to the other side of the bed and peeing in his chamber pot. Hooray. But in this act of humiliation I guess they bond and are able to accept one another as humans Well
0: that's lovely
1: like it really kind of gets lovely it's weird
0: it's weird but it's great because too. you realize the other person's humanity fair decency celestial maid descend from heaven's beauty's aid though beauty may beget desiretis thou must fan the lover's fire for beauty like supreme Dominion is best supported by opinion. If decency brings no supplies, opinion falls and beauty dies. A prudent builder should forecast how long the stuff is like to last, and carefully observe the ground to build on some foundation sound. What house, when its materials crumble, must not inevitably tumble? What edifice can long endure, raised on a basis unsecure? Rash mortals, ere you take a wife, contrive your pile to last for life since beauty scarce endures a day and youth so swiftly glides away which will you make yourself a bubble to build on sand with hay and stubble on sense and wit your passion found by decency cemented round let prudence with good nature strive to keep esteem and love alive then come old age whenever it will your friendship shall continue still and thus a mutual gentle fire shall never but with life expire
1: okay that got so sweet
0: So make sure on your wedding night that you pee together, (laughs) because if you don't, your house will crumble. That's what I got.
1: Okay, you got it wrong. I didn't know you could get poetry wrong. But it's saying, like, if you try to keep a perfect appearance up, you'll never really know one another. But if you build a genuine friendship, you'll be happy for the rest of your life, which seems oddly progressive for the 1730s. (laughs)
0: So start a podcast. Is yeah, what you're
1: saying. he's saying start a podcast. Okay, thanks Swift. But this poem, along with others like it, and there are several. There's one in which man, who's like a peeping tom, discovers the woman he's observing shits, and it's horrifying to him and very entertaining. But this one is sweeter, and I thought it was more interesting that it turned to like a moral place. This genre for Swift, this faux romantic poem, is meant to satirize romantic poems he did not care for all of these overly romantic portrayals of women he thought they were ridiculous which today we appreciate however back in the day people assumed that there must be something wrong with him you think there were tapes (laughs) in the excremental vision norman o brown goes into great detail about those who likely attempted to criticize and analyze swift according to aldous huxley swift is the excremental vision and his sexuality was structurally abnormal from the start. P. Greenacre further elaborates on Huxley's point, stating, Swift lost his father before he was born, was kidnapped from his mother by his nurse at age one, was returned to his mother three years later, only to be abandoned by his mother one month after his return at the psychoanalytically crucial edible period. By psychoanalytical standards, such as succession of infantile traumata must establish more then a predisposition to lifelong neurosis.
0: I thought we weren't going into Freud. Yeah, just a little bit. It's Toussaint of Freud. It's
1: Toussaint. So they're like, oh, clearly he's hung up on poop and pee because look at all the poop and pee that happened to him, shit and stuff that happened to him before he was three.
0: He had a shitty life, so. So,
1: clearly. Now, Swift's work, to me, kind of reflects this, like, microcosm of scatological imagery and how these humanizing, humbling, intimate, private things between people affect relationships and our understanding of one another. That's really where he thrives. He does have the like a large-scale sense of filth in some of his writing, but definitely tends toward these more personal themes. But Tobias Smollett, like, when you learn the word scotology, you're probably being forced to read Humphrey Clinker.
0: Okay, I have heard you bitch about this book when you were in your... Early novels class. Ugh. So are you going to torture our listeners with this? A little bit. I'm sorry. Just a minute. You've got like. like a
1: minute. I'm going to set a timer. To bitch? Just about the book? No.
0: Just to talk about it. So we don't lose any listeners.
1: Right. So he's considered like one of the first novelists. And he was a trained physician who wrote pamphlets on public health.
0: Oh, he's a doctor. No, you can talk forever.
1: Though. Okay. Yeah. In addition to his fiction work, he was, you know, all about writing on some. Some medical stuff. In one of his pamphlets, or essays, I guess, was an essay on the external uses of water. And it shows his interest in sanitation and health. It describes beliefs that Smollett did not hold himself when he had bad health, because he argued that mineral water had no medicinal benefit in essays. However, in his personal letters, he revealed a considerable change in heart. I no sooner drank a large glass of them, the waters, from the pump then my face and hands and feet begin to glow
0: i bet he sold some of this too
1: <laughs> well he didn't write that publicly that was just like his own personal feelings but he believed that water could balance the humors oh god <laughs> and he defended archibald cleland who was attempting to reform certain aspects of the baths and make them more sanitary but in his last novel humphrey clinker which was published after his death in 1771 there's a sort of confluence of all of his interests, crusades, and beliefs. And it sort of deals with reform, modernization, and travel. And there's also a big emphasis on comparisons between England and Scotland, and he is Scottish by birth, English by choice, and that comes through in the novel as well. He uses medicine as a metaphor to describe all the problems with England's urban culture. And so in this context, we see that the managing of human waste... Is analogous to managing the growing social waste of an overly luxurious and lazy England. Matthew Bramble, a central character in the novel, escapes urban life and travels to Bath with the hopes of curing his gout.
0: Does he bathe there?
1: Yes. And he also goes to Scarborough to bathe in the ocean
0: that doesn't have bath in the title
1: <laughs> right um, however the problem was not remedied because it was more deeply more internally rooted than Bramble was originally willing to admit just as the problem of social waste is not only highlighted by poor conditions in the cities but in some cyclical way both cause and result of the blindness of the upper class uh,
0: so his illness was due to his moral problems
1: yes and like his laziness a lot of it's laziness they're very anti-lazy
0: He must be from Lubberland.
1: Yes, he's from Lubberland. You're right. But Bramble, Bramble eventually begins to remedy the waste he sees in his friend's mismanagement of his own finances. And he's entrusted with fixing it. And he sells off the estate of one Baynard, who is deep in debt. And he dismisses the servants and pays them for an extra month of work and helps establish a plan for paying down the debts and turning the useless gardens into farmland. And he's finally clean and his gout is real Woohoo! right
0: wow that sounds like a riveting novel
1: it's epistolary
0: oh god it's even worse
1: from three different characters
0: in the 1700s oh
1: my god it's so horrible
0: well hey let's go to a better book a better book one of my favorite authors h.g. west oh
1: my god i'm sorry i was like having flashbacks to that class okay i'm back i'm back well, time then. Yeah, I yeah. know I really did. I was like I was thinking about the blue books. Okay. Yes, I'm over it. It's behind me now. I conquered it.
0: Yes, the time machine. Time HG machine. Wells. HG Wells
1: is much better. Yes,
0: you have classic oh. science fiction, father of science fiction, modern science fiction.
1: Ah. Okay.
0: And I'm where back. our protagonist invents a time machine. As you do. And where most of the story takes place is he travels to the far distant future.
1: It's got like six digits.
0: And there he meets the Eloi, Mm -hmm. which are these kind of naive, infantile, sweet people.
1: The word I always think of when I think of them is like brittle.
0: But then he also discovers that there's another race upon the earth in the future.
1: Living beneath. The Eloise Settlements.
0: The Morlocks.
1: And they, like the alligators, have become white. They're described as having no chins, which first of all, you know I write that off.
0: Micronathia.
1: But they have no chins. They have grayish pink eyes, white hair at the napes of their neck, and their skin is grayish white in hue. And they are spider-like, animal-like, and very, very nasty.
0: And within the novel, he eventually finds, through going through an old library, (laughs) that the Eloi are descended from the idle rich and the Morlocks from the working poor. So you get this really weird, odd dynamic between the two, where the Morlocks are serving the needs of the Eloi, and sometimes they eat them as well.
1: Wait, who eats who? The, the Morlocks eat them. Yeah,
0: of course.
1: So are they just like farming them? Or are they just taking care of their livestock? Maybe so. Okay. Let's look at the, the publication date on, on that piece of fiction there, honey.
0: 1895.
1: When were the sewers being built in New York City?
0: Just a little bit before then.
1: And in quick succession... We see Jules Verne published Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864, and The Netherworld is published by George Gissing in 1889. And in 1904, construction begins on New York's subway. Just saying.
0: Well, this leads to another interesting urban legend that also is circulated. not not anywhere as popular as the alligators in the sewers. But the mole people.
1: Now, the tradition of people fleeing underground when they can no longer stand society is not that new. Nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. So we look back, we look to, you know, Victor Hugo, who's writing roughly around the same time as Goya is painting. We have this monstrous, grotesque, permeating the collective consciousness. And he composes a little ditty he likes to call... The Hunchback of Notre Dame.
0: I've seen the Disney movie.
1: Yeah. It doesn't end like that. It's Victor Hugo. Have you seen Les Miserables? It's more like that. And Hathaway's is in it. Probably. Wolverine
0: plays Quasimodo.
1: You know, you understand. Esmeralda will never love Frollo. Never love him. She says, and he says, you can either love me or you can be hanged. And she says, I'll take that one. And so Quasimodo climbs the top of the North Tower and sees her hanging from the scaffold in a white dress. He then pushes Frollo from the North Tower, and he dies. He sees Esmeralda's hanging body and the crumpled body of Frollo, and he cries out, There is everything I have loved. And he's never seen again. However, years later, a grave digger discovers Esmeralda's remains in the catacombs and finds the skeleton of a hunchback curled around her.
0: Why is that not in the Disney movie? You're
1: right. It'd be better.
0: It's no worse than the hunter killing Bambi's mom.
1: It's a a little worse. I don't know. So in that vein, we have this idea that impurity and disorder are synonymous. And this comes from Bernadette Boucher and Mary Douglas's writing. Impurity and disorder are synonymous from a social standpoint. Boucher claims that what is decreed impure and thus excreted and condemned by a culture is an object out of place, a cause for disorder. Excrement becomes part of this disorder and marginalization, because it is both naturally present, but in most cases, socially absent. It finds itself in an ambiguous and confusing circumstance, because it is of the body, but then physically dislodged from it. Consequently, human waste is separated from the individual who created it, and from society that rejects it. Paying close attention to this disorder, understanding the treatment of impurity, and its concomitant danger within a given society's conceptualization of its own nature becomes critical to a full, accurate appreciation of that society. And there's something to be said for transgressing the boundary that that so clearly defines. Like, we want that away from us. And so there's this weird power in talking about these uncomfortable things. Shocking. It's shocking.
0: Yeah, I mean, think of like
1: shock jocks. Toilet humor. But danger, risk, my boundary transgression is power evoking reactions of disgust and or rabid delight. And we see this like intense focus put on what to do with waste very early. We want to control it. There are tons of like self-care manuals that circulate. And this comes through in like psychoanalytics and Freudian writing. And, oh, yeah, because
0: you're getting neuroses if you don't. If you
1: don't take care of that stuff, you're going to have problems, dude. And one of these manuals comes from Elias. And so Elias postulates that the notion of a civilizing process is based on a gradual modification in personality makeup, or habitus, including but not limited to those involving attitudes towards excrementary experience, motivated by the rise of courtly and or bourgeois habitus, both of which became increasingly scandalized over time by that experience and, as a result, increasingly censurious of its representation, the shift can be readily documented in the rise and proliferation of manuals of conduct. So there are a variety of ways for dealing with this excrementory experience. Experience? Yeah. And several authors postulate that understanding society's relationship to that experience is absolutely crucial, crucial for understanding a society itself. New York white, all I'm saying.
0: I guess, you know, I mean, like people say you need to understand the underbelly of a society to really understand it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similar to that. Right. This is something no one wants to talk about.
1: And Inglis writes that dirt, and hence disorder, hence danger, became associated with proletariat and proverbial unwashed or even unwiped masses. As distinct from the hygienically sound and hence orderly, hence safe bourgeois, and that is until the former two came to adopt English bourgeois, now universal, Western fecal habitus, which ultimately deprived dirt of its utility as a class distinction. The civilizing process... Here becomes synonymous with a rigorous public and private effort to distance oneself from one's own excrement, the sight and smell of which grow proportionally offensive. The offense transfers easily to those words and images that represent that sight and that smell, resulting in as much discomfort with scatology as with the excretory experience itself.
0: I love the academic phrasing of the excretory experience. It's like when we go, shit, it's different. But you have that classic New York urban legend of the mole people living underground, deep in the depths of the city. According to the rumors, their eyes have adapted to the constant night that cloaks them from the topside world. They eat rats. They're cannibals. I assume they eat alligator as well. <laughs> and one day, they will emerge from the sewers and burn New York City down. So these mole people are going back to those ideas you talked about where there's still that kind of class distinction. They are definitely an other. Yeah, They are across that line. They are not only living literally in the filth, And literally living underneath us, they are also cannibalistic.
1: And their eyes can see in the dark. That's kind of cool. (laughs) So confession, like all I can think about when I picture this is from the comic series, The Cult. It's a Batman series. Do you remember it?
0: Yes. It's very good.
1: It is really good. But like to me, the mole people are actually illustrated (laughs) And live in panels. But I read an amazing account of the mole people by Anthony Talley on Narratively from 2015. And I'm going to have it up on the site. And I really would recommend, like, if you are interested in this at all, go check it out. He has links to tons of sources himself in his own writing and has done some amazing research. And I'm going to be relying on his writing here pretty heavily, so I would like to give him adequate and ample credit. It really is a fantastic piece. But so he goes down into the underbelly of New York City.
0: And he finds alligators?
1: No, but he finds John.
0: A mole person. Yes.
1: Yes? Yes. Yes? Yes. What? Well, honey, they can't really see in the dark.
0: Aww.
1: They're not really cannibals.
0: Never mind.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, they do live secretly under the city. Fine. Okay, I don't have to tell you.
0: I want to know. Okay,
1: thank you. So John says that he's been homeless for 15 years and that he did a little prison time and that he has bipolar and suffers from substance dependence. And he also says he used to be a gang member in the Bronx or he used to be a family man until he got disowned. He was a furniture salesman. The FBI is looking for him. He used to know Donald Trump. It doesn't matter which version is true.
0: Maybe all of them are.
1: His real story has been buried long ago under thick layers of improvised memories that grew more detailed by the years. The man slowly becoming a collage of himself. I'm good here, he says. No taxes, no rent, no nothing. There's no hassle compared to the streets. You know what I'm saying? Here I don't get bugged by kids. It's a safe place. I can do what I want to do. And I don't have to take nothing from nobody. You're the first person to visit this week, he says. People don't want to speak to me when they come here. I don't know, man. They're scared or something. I can see why. It's a spooky place if you don't know it. But people, they like it when it's scary. They like it when it's dirty, right? It makes them feel alive. That's why they make up these stories about cannibalism and stuff. You know, like alligators in the sewer.
0: Uh, It's so interesting. He's... He's like a self-aware urban legend.
1: I know. He's the best informant ever. He's going, see also, footnote. But as Anthony continues his journey through the tunnels, he passes some, some graffiti that reads, existence is flawed. He says, the city growls over my head, a distant growl muffled by the concrete, almost a snarl, like something cold and foul spreading over the long stretches of strained walls. Like a dark and wild beast curling up around me and breathing on my neck. A dark and wild beast slowly trailing me. So the city is kind of the monster, which I love.
0: The beast is there.
1: Just out of sight. Always. But he says the legend of the mole people really took off in 1990 when John Tierney published an article in the New York Times. And it was one of the earliest accounts of the New York City mole people.
0: The New York Times is just an urban legend maker.
1: <laughs> it really is he interviewed a group of people who were living in an abandoned train tunnel beneath Riverside Park on the banks of the Hudson. And that remained a prominent location for these kind of shanty towns up through Giuliani. And it had been a popular shanty town since like the thirties. Hooverville. Hoovervilles, yes. And in 1993, Jennifer Thoth published Originally an essay and later a book called The Mole People, and she described communities residing in a network of forsaken caverns, holes, and shafts across Manhattan. It was an instant hit, and it chronicled the organization of those underground societies. And she described compounds of several thousands where babies were born and regular lives were lived with elected officials, hot water, and even electricity.
0: No, that sounds like science fiction.
1: Well, maybe. Maybe. In 1996, as pointed out by Joseph Brennan, who was a New York City railroad buff, which, good on you.
0: We all have hobbies. That
1: many of the places she described did not exist, and many of her accounts contradicted themselves. Still, while the essay may have been inflated or romanticized, it is nonetheless true that homeless begging in the streets of New York was merely the tip of the iceberg. Photojournalists Margaret Morton and Andrea Starr-Reese, both extensively documented communities, spread in underground hideouts since Thoth's book and a Dutch anthropologist, Tuen Vorten's 1996 diary, Tunnel People, provided an incredible account of the months spent with the Riverside Park and Track Tunnel inhabitants before they were evicted and moved to Section 8 housing units. In 2000, director Mark Singer released his acclaimed documentary, Dark Days, filming the same people, followed by Voten and Toth in their respective books. So there has been some documentation. Toth won't talk about it anymore. Because she's like, I don't want to get them in trouble. So it's very hard to kind of nail that down. And the author says that it was actually the graphic novel Pitch Black written by Anthony Horton, which is about the author's own struggle as a homeless man that was written in an abandoned crew room of the F-Line subway that led him to be fascinated with this subterranean culture.
0: Something else inspired by comic books. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He goes on to talk about Bernard Isaac, who said to him once, this is a sanctuary, a place to find peace and take a break from the chaos. He would then reminisce about his old life and his eyes would light up and there would be a crack of a smile and whatever place we were in would be filled by his presence. And Bernard was something of a legend within this culture because he had a a BA in journalism and sort of nominated himself to be the group's. Unofficial spokesperson Now he was a former cocaine smuggler And had two sons But was never really close to this family However at one time he owned an Upper West Side Penthouse and threw lavish parties But in the 1980s he lost Everything and began sleeping in the Riverside Tunnel
0: So maybe here is the romanticized leader
1: <laughs> Mm-hmm. And one day three men Asked Isaac for a toll As he came by 125th Street entrance to the tunnel And he laughed at them and said Do you know who you're talking to? I'm the fucking lord of this tunnel.
0: King of the sewers. King of the
1: sewers. But he earned the nickname Lord of the Tunnel that day.
0: That's a great nickname. I know.
1: He said that most people who lived in the tunnel did not consider themselves homeless. And then I included a couple of the other stories of the particular individuals that he interacted with, just because I was kind of struck by them. So he talks about Brooklyn, who is another longtime resident of the tunnels. She's been there since 1982. And she's a former Marine with no surviving family. He says she has perfected her story for journalists along the years. Everything she relates is recited like a school lesson. Her stint in the Marines, the death of her parents, the loss of her family house, the kids lighting her cardboard shack on fire in the park, her boyfriend BK and their issues, the food bowls left at her door for the 49 cats she feeds. And I do have to say that when he walks up to her, she's singing Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, so she's awesome. And she offers him tunnel stew while he's there. And what could that be? Just kind of a mishmash of everything, everything everyone's collected, like seasoning packets and vegetables and just just whatever you could find. Whatever you can find. Dim sum. Basically, he says it's chicken soup, microwave mixes, thrown away vegetables. She said, "I wish I had a big kitchen with all kinds of cutlery and equipment. I would cook all day long." surprisingly tasty. And as I was reading this, I was like very struck by the hospitality of these people. Like you run across another guy who had found some cupcakes and was like, You want a cupcake? Like he had cupcakes and he shared his cupcakes. I would not share my cupcakes.
0: <laughs> but with that camaraderie and that hospitality, I mean think about it, if you're living in a like loose community, I mean that
1: just reciprocity yeah, is very important to survive. survive. Well. Also there are a lot of people that are like caring for animals. But she goes on to say, we're just people it's hard living here. You never get used to it. If you accept it, if you stop fighting, then you're done, okay? If you give up, you just die. You know what I'm saying? And he also discusses the story of Jessica, who is a single mother with a three year old. And there were implications when she was staying in a halfway house that her child was going to be taken and put into the foster care system when she was in transitional housing. So she left and entrusted the care of her daughter to her sister. And she said she was afraid to go to the shelters because there are a lot of violent people there. She said she did not like the, quote, crackheads. And so she began living underground after Hurricane Sandy. And she chose this location because it's closer to her job at McDonald's.
0: So she has a job?
1: Yes. Obviously, I don't tell my colleagues I stay here, but it's better than anywhere I've been before. Here I can have my dog, she says, petting a small mutt snuggled in her lap. Plus, it's just temporary. I'm eligible for Section 8 housing. In less than a year, I'll be in a real apartment and I'll have my baby with me again.
0: That's an amazing story. You know, she sounds like such a survivor.
1: How tough do you have to be to do that, man? So he ends his day by going to Isaac's old hideout to sleep. Isaac died in 2014. While he's there, he says, the whole place feels like a grave. And then he describes sitting with Isaac one night where he says, modern society is guilty of intellectual terrorism. And there is a graffiti artist named David Sane Smith who is the younger brother of Roger Smith, infamous, notorious graffiti artist. And St. immediately sprayed the quote on the wall. It encompassed Isaac's entire way of thinking. He sleeps that night in Isaac's old place in the tunnel, but there's no hint of the former settlement there. And at night, there's something about it that makes sense, but the next morning he wakes up and he's like, this isn't fun. You know, like this isn't romantic. Right. And he's done it before. This is not the first night he's spent there, but it just... There's something about the light that's wrong. And he goes and he's talking to a few more people. And they're trying to track someone down. And he says, We find an old man sleeping on a couch behind a safety wall. A copy of Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men rest on the sofa.
0: Oh, one of my favorites.
1: Inside, a sentence is underlined in blue ink. Guys like us don't got nothing to look ahead to. We stay a moment at his side before I finally leave the tunnel, emerging from the wet ground behind a grove of trees. The streets seem slower than usual, the clouds heavier. What does not kill me makes me stronger, Nietzsche wrote. But hurt doesn't make us stronger. Hurt just makes us hurt. And hurt lives in the land of the lost and unites them in missing love and broken homes for five cents a can, 240 cans per day. The few mole people left today survive in hurt. They are relics of a New York that was... And witnesses of a world so estranged that nobody truly remembers it anymore. Most are too late for the topside life. How easy it would be to go away and never come back. But this is their city. This is their home. These are their minds wandering and their time slipping. Their hopes and their thirst until the sun goes down. Away. To a place made of birches and wet leaves and blue afternoons and muddy clothes a place where dark days would be foreign, a place for them, and all the unseen, warm as liquor, where hurt would be sweet and love would be real.
0: It's fantastic writing. You really should go read it. But you can see, what are you saying? You know that these people are forgotten, purposely forgotten. We purposely do not talk about it, and the only way we talk about it is in urban legends are personified as beasts under our feet.
1: And they're literally treated as unsightly. It's like, you can't be in these places, tourists are here. You have to go somewhere else. No one wants to look at you.
0: No, I mean, that's what Giuliani did. You know, he bust them all out and cleaned up New York. Scare quotes. But these are the people that we choose not to talk about.
1: This is the thing that we must distance ourselves from. From in order to feel clean as a society we have said that this makes us feel dirty that there are people who slip through the cracks that there is no safety net for everyone that not everyone is going to be okay it makes us feel dirty and we need it as far away from us as possible we can't look at it so instead of looking at that we create monsters and every once in a while we hear them beneath the streets and we're sure that one day They'll remember who put them there because it's easier to imagine them coming after us than it is to imagine putting ourselves near them.
0: And that's not just a story. It's not just a story.